Good morning, everyone. This morning, I want to talk to you about how much God loves you. And even as I say that, I'm sure that for some people, your heart will be jumping with delight. It's a subject that you love to hear about. It's a subject that you go back to over and over again. It's a subject that excites you every time someone comes up to speak about it or you read a passage of Scripture that includes it. For others of you, you'll hear that as a topic for today and you'll think, okay, heard some sermons about the love of God before, read some passages about the love of God before. Um, Yeah, I was kind of hoping for something a little new, a little fresh, but okay, we can live with this. I want to say to you that no matter who you are and how you've come today and the expectations you have as I open up and talk about this subject, I want to say that none of us can get enough of the love of God. So if you're coming here thinking, okay, this is exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being uh, filled up a little more. I feel like my cup's already pretty full with this subject. I'm going to say it's actually not that full. It's not as full as it needs to be. You still need more of the love of God and an understanding of it. And if you're coming here this morning and you feel like, nah, yawn, this is a subject that I've heard before, uh, I want to say especially to you that you need this because this is a subject that we just simply cannot get enough of. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say it on the basis of Scripture itself. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and following, Paul, in an amazing moment with the Ephesian Christians, says, For this reason, I fall on my knees before the Father. This is a dramatic moment. I mean, how many times have you said that in your life about anything? I fell down on my knees. Maybe when you uh, propose to your wife, perhaps, if you're, you're a husband here. But this is a dramatic moment. Paul says, I fall down on my knees. And he's falling down on his knees, in fact, to pray for the Ephesians to pray for something. And you see, therefore, that this is a serious moment. This is a big moment for him. He feels like he needs to bow before God and plead with God because this is such an important subject. But what does he say? He says, for this reason, I bow before the Father. And then he goes on to say, that you may have strength to comprehend. This is not just something that is like falling off a log. This is something that requires strength for comprehension, that you may, he goes on to say, with all the saints, understand what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and that you may know the love of Christ. There it is. That's what he's falling on his knees to pray for them for, begging the Father that they might have an understanding of the love of Christ. And he says, because it surpasses knowledge. It's not something that you can just sit down and contemplate and ponder and think about, but the love of God is something that you need to experience. It needs to be real in your life. Now get this, the best part is yet to come. So that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now you see why I said what I said, right? Who of us could say that we are filled with the fullness of God? What would it look like if you were filled with the fullness of God? For some of you, that might sound like a scary idea, a scary concept. Would I lose myself? No, you would be all of who you should be because God, the creator of the universe, has made you 
And the more fullness of the Lord that we have, the more that we press into the Lord, the more we know Him, the more life makes sense, the more we live the way we should live. This is a fantastic comment, isn't it, that he's making here. Paul is falling down on his knees before God with the Ephesians, pleading that they might comprehend how big God's love is because he knows that if they do, then they will be filled with the fullness of God. So for me to say to begin with here that we all need this, we all need to recomprehend and understand deeper the love of God. You can see why I say that because the Bible tells us that that is the case. Now, let me kind of dig down here. It's often helpful when you think about the solution to think about the problem. What is the problem here with us when it comes to not comprehending the love of God? Why do we have such a struggle to understand and comprehend the love of God? Well, first of all, I want to say that sometimes I think the reason can be abstraction. We can be too clever for our own good. We can think that we can sit down and comprehend God, think about God, ponder Him, distill out His main attributes, and then we've got God in a box. And therein lies one of our biggest problems. I can speak to this, this whole contemplation thing, because I teach at a seminary and I'm around people and I am tempted myself with the same thing, to make God in a box, to so think about God and distill Him down and abstract Him from real life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Catechism of the Presbyterian Church, says, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's a pretty good distillation. I actually didn't hear the word love there mentioned, though, (laughs) interestingly enough. But it's a distillation that abstracts God. And not only with things like that, but with ourselves, we can sit there and ponder and think about God and join the dots and think about what God is like. But in that abstraction, we lose the reality of who he is interacting with with us in real life. Here's kind of a freebie apart from the message that we're going to talk about this morning. And that is that I think the amazing thing is that God has revealed himself to us. And if we go back through history and we start with creation, we see that God is a creative God. That he is apart from the world, but then he comes down immediately to the man and breathes life into his nostrils. And then he makes a place for the man and the woman to live and have purpose. And he gives them choice to choose life or death. And he walks with them in the cool of the day. And of course, even when they choose death, he's merciful then Cain kills Abel and God is willing to listen to him and lessen his punishment. What a wonderful exercise. Go ahead and do this. Go ahead and start at the beginning of the Bible and ask the question, Lord, will you show me what you are like in the order that you have revealed yourself to me? Rather than me trying to come and think that I understand you from my perspective. Now, if, I, if, someone, uh, if you ask someone to write down a list of who you are, you can imagine that the list might be accurate. But chances are it wouldn't be in an order or emphasizing the things that you want to emphasize about yourself. Let us get off our high horse and thinking that we can comprehend an abstract God and let's listen to the way he has worked in the world and believe him for who he is. 
So I think one reason why we can miss the love of God sometimes is because we abstract God. We want to put him into our little box of understanding. But another reason why I think, and this really brings us to the subject of our passage and our section for today, I think another big problem is that life happens. Isn't that true? Life happens. Things happen in life. Things start out well for you and you believe that God loves you and then things start to go haywire. You don't get married, though you plan to get married. You had this dream in your head that you would have children and you were not able to have children. You had plans to study and then you had that accident and it stopped you studying or playing sport. And there were relationships in your family that you hoped would always be intimate and close, but then your parents divorce. Life starts to happen, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, we think, where is God in this? We spend many hours pleading with him at night, Lord, please hear my prayer. Bring my parents back together. Please allow us to have children. Please allow me to marry. Please allow this path to go forward. And in many cases, there's nothing wrong with the paths that we're praying for. And when the Lord doesn't show up, we think, where is God? Where is his love? And this is the subject I want to talk to you about today. This blockage, this, this disaster that can happen in our lives where the baggage starts to build up, where story after story starts to build up and we just wonder, where is the love of God in the midst of pain and suffering? The good thing is that this is a topic that Mark knows all too well. Because Mark's audience is written to Christians who are suffering. Get this. Mark didn't sit down, I don't think, and decide, I'm going to write a story about Jesus' life. He actually sat down and thought, here is a group of Christians who are being persecuted. They're being impaled, dipped in oil and burnt to light up Nero's palace. We know that historically. Christians were, were blamed for the burning of Rome. They were being thrown to wild animals. In the, and so here is a context of suffering. And Mark sits down and says, I want to write a story about Jesus' life so that people can relate to suffering and understand the love of God. And so that they can know that Nero is not really the king, that Jesus is the king and all hope is found in him. So we come to a good place when we come to Mark's gospel to look at this subject. And what I want us to do is look at three different characters, in fact, in terms of the love of God and suffering. Sounds like a big task. Don't worry, we'll get out here on time uh, for communion, etc. But I want to join some threads. In many ways, I want to pick up two characters that we've already looked at in our sermon series so far and pick up one other character, not to steal that sermon for being preached later on because I'm not going to say everything about it, but we're going to tie together three people and look at them in terms of the love of God and suffering. Now, the first person we're going to look at is Jesus. That's a good place to start, isn't it? We're going to look at his baptism and what happens with that. The second person we're going to look at is the man with leprosy at the end of chapter 1. And the third person, jumping to chapter 10, we're going to look at is the rich man. Now let's start off then with Jesus. 
Mark's gospel begins with a bang. And it begins with a bang for the reasons that I've just mentioned. It's not because Mark decides just to start the story anywhere. It's because he knows that by starting the story with the baptism of Jesus and Jesus being cast into the wilderness, he knows that he's going to be able to resonate with his audience on this very subject of the love of God and suffering. That's exactly where Mark's gospel starts. The other gospels start with stories of Jesus' birth and, and, the, and the shepherds and, you know, all the stories. But Mark's gospel begins with the baptism of Jesus. And what happens at the baptism of Jesus? Well, we read it already, didn't we? Jesus comes up out of the water and God speaks from heaven. That's going to be a big moment, doesn't it? What God says from heaven at this moment has got to be huge. And so not only is there the drama of this being the first story that comes in Mark's gospel, but there's this dramatic moment of the father speaking. What does he say? You know, of course, don't you? This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Just think about those words for a second. Aren't there moments in your life where you just wish that there was that voice that came down to remind you of the love of God? I remember my wife was struggling at one point and I was hugging her and she just said, I, wish, I just wish Jesus would give me a hug. There are moments, aren't there, where we just need to know with all of what's going on in our life around about us, we need to know that God loves us. And here at this moment, the father speaks down to the son and says, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. What beautiful words, how we would love to own them for ourselves. Well, guess what? We can, because what happens next parallels exactly what was happening to the first Christians. Now, I do teach Greek, and I promise you that I'm only going to mention two Greek words here today, and none, neither of them will bamboozle you there, just for teaching's sake, for help's sake. The first word is a word that occurs right next in this passage, and it is the word ekbalo. Now, we know this word, actually, from English words. Balo is where we get the word ballistics from. So it means to throw or to fly, like shooting bullets, right? Ballistics. And the word ek is where we get ek or ex, external, means outside. So ek below means to throw out. And if you think of like it sounds like a kind of violent word, like an expulsive word, you're absolutely right. Because in Mark's gospel, it occurs multiple times with reference to casting out demons. They were thrown out, right? They were expelled. Now, another time that occurs is when Jesus says you need to take sin in your life and throw it out. Again, expulsive. And another time is when Jesus is healing a little girl and the people are mocking him and he throws them out. Now, the only other place in Mark's gospel that this word is used is here. When it says that straight away after Jesus came out and received these beautiful words from the Father, it says the Holy Spirit threw him out into the wilderness. Isn't that extraordinary? The Holy Spirit threw him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Now, that's important. Only in Mark's gospel are we told that Jesus was with wild animals. And of course, it was because the first Christians 
were being thrown to the wild animals as well. You see, the story starts by telling us an amazing truth. That even if you feel like God is throwing you to the wolves, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. Can you receive that today? The very words that are being told to Jesus, what's happening in Jesus' life here is meant to be communicating to the first Christians that God's love for you is deep as the Father loves the Son. But that doesn't mean that things won't happen in life, even things you won't understand. The story is only a couple of verses and there is no explanation given as to even why Jesus is being thrown out into the wilderness. But isn't that the greatest comfort and encouragement for you and I? Because things happen in your life that you don't understand why as well. But in those moments, by faith, you need to cling to the reality that God loves you. That God has spoken down on you the fact that this is my beloved son or daughter. With him or her, I am well pleased. This is a word we need to hear this morning, isn't it? Because the first thing we see here is that we need to not let the throwing out moments crowd in to the voice from heaven moment. We need by faith to look back on our lives in those moments where things have happened and you know that it has allowed you to let it bleed back into your view of God. I'm sure that even looking out at you now, you know what I'm talking about. You have let those moments eat away, corrode your attitude towards God and his love for you. And I want to say to you this morning that Mark chapter 1 tells you to stop it, to put that aside, to say, no, that bleeding, that, that stuff, that gunk that has seeped into my view of God needs to be washed out and to be expelled forever. Because even if you don't know why you are being thrown to the walls, God still loves you. We're off to a good start. <laughs> Talking about Jesus and his life. The second person we're going to look at is the man with leprosy. Now, I told a lie a second ago, actually. It was a small lie. It was a lie nevertheless. Don't write me off. The lie was that the only other example of Ekbalo was in Jesus being thrown out in the wilderness. Wrong. There is one other example, and it occurs here with the man with leprosy. See, what happens with the man in leprosy is, first of all, yet again, the love of God is affirmed to him. This man is so beaten down, and you and I know what that feels like sometimes, don't we? He's so beaten down that he actually says in this pitiful way, Lord, if you are willing to be able to heal me, right? Such a, a beaten down position. And Jesus is moved with compassion. And this is the second Greek word I'm going to tell you. And it sounds like what it means. Maybe I've mentioned it before. It's the word splagna. And it sounds like your stomach, doesn't it? And that's what it is. It's your guts. And we know that physiologically, when you get emotional, your guts literally do move around beside one another. You know, butterflies in the stomach. Well, 
Jesus is moved deep in his stomach with compassion for this man. He loves him. And he shows it in action by reaching out and touching him, even though he has a skin disease. He's willing to make himself ritually unclean as a Jew by reaching out and touching this man. And who knows what disease this man might have. He reaches out and touches him. Guess what he does next? You guessed it. He throws him out. (laughs) It's incredible, isn't it? This violent word that's used for demon possession is used yet again. Jesus threw him out and gave him something very, very painful and difficult to do. He called him to minister for Jesus himself and to suffer the pain of his ministry by going to the religious leaders and bearing testimony to them as to what happened. Now, for such a a beaten down man, that would have been a hard thing to do. You know what it's like if you don't like the limelight, right? He doesn't want to do that. And also, it's going to raise questions. Who did this? Well, it was Jesus. He reached out and touched me. He touched you. What did he do? And it's going to bind this guy to Jesus' ministry and put him under pressure. And so what does he do? Get this. He half obeys. Isn't that the problem? When difficult things are presented to us by the Lord, we half obey. He decides that he's not going to go out and tell the people he's supposed to tell. He goes and tells everybody else. And as a result of that, he messes up Jesus' entire ministry. Now, if he had have gone out and told the people who he was supposed to tell, the blessing would have been that it would have prepared the way for Jesus' confrontation with these people in chapter 2. But because he goes out and tells everybody else, Jesus isn't able to go and minister the way he should and has to go to lonely places because people are tracking him down. This is a beautiful addition to our idea. I don't think it's any accident that Mark, it can't be an accident that Mark uses ekbalo only in these two cases and right next to one another. What he's wanting us to know and what he's wanting to say to the first audience, Mark is wanting to communicate here is, Jesus loves you. God loves you. There it is again. Even if you're feeling beaten down, he reaches out and he touches you. He's moved deep in his stomach with compassion for you. God feels for us in our pain. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have things for you to do. To bear witness to him. And that those things will be painful. So the additional idea that's so good here is that when you and I suffer things in this world and we don't understand them, those things need not corrode our confidence in the love of God. And the second thing is that maybe the Lord is calling you through your suffering and pressing close into him to bear witness to him. The third person, the rich man. As I said, I don't want to steal anything about this passage when it's preached later on. And in fact, I'm not going to because there's so much here that we can't possibly comment on. There are comments here in this passage to be made about wealth. That's not what I'm going to be talking about this morning. I'll save that up for Jonathan. (laughs) There are subjects here that talk about 
fixing on Jesus rather than seeing Jesus as a signpost. Because the guy comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, meaning a teacher points you in the right direction, right? And he's a good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Just point me in the right direction. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And what he's saying is, I am God. Don't see me as a signpost. Stop with me. So those are two of just a number of wonderful things that are found in this passage. But what I want to focus on in this passage yet again is actually the love of Jesus for this guy, just ever so briefly. It actually says in the passage after Jesus says, you know the commandments, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. There it is, yet again. He looks at this guy and he loves him. Now, there is indication that this guy has actually sinned in the way he'd accumulated his wealth. And I say that because of the commandments Jesus lists, he goes, the fifth commandment, sorry, the sixth commandment, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, and then he jumps back to the fifth commandment. But when he tells the tenth commandment, instead of saying all of the others, by the way, are all word for word out of the Ten Commandments and the order, when he gets to the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, he actually changes the language and says, you shall not uh, rort, you know, you shall not uh, rob or um, extort. And there's a hint there, the fact that he changes that Tenth Commandment, that this guy has actually extorted. But get this, he doesn't look at the guy and despise him. He looks at him and loves him. And more than that, he calls him to be one of his own inner circle disciples. So one of the big struggles here with this passage is, is Jesus calling everybody to sell their wealth and give it away? Actually, no. But if you go and look at the disciples themselves, and even in Peter's words later on, he says, look, Lord, we've sold everything and given it to you. There's a reminder that, what Jesus is actually doing with this guy is calling him to be one of his closest disciples. Isn't that incredible? Even when the pain and suffering that you're going to have to endure is your own fault, the Lord still loves you. And he loves you with such an amazing love that he wants to call you to give it up and to be used of him in the most powerful way. So we're about to go to communion. But I just want to say here that I think that these three stories have something incredible to tell us. And they nuance things step by step in amazing ways. You may, come here this, you may have come here this morning and as I kind of introduced things the way I did, you, you said, you know what, you're right. I really have let circumstances bleed into my life and affect the way I see God's love for me. And I want to say to you that that is no small problem. If you think, yeah, this is a bit of an issue for me, you're right. It's a huge issue. Because in Ephesians 3, Paul says, that in order for us to be filled with the fullness of God, then we need to comprehend the bigness and the depth of God's love. So anything that expels out this toxic waste that is sucked in, that's been sucked into our view of God, it needs to be expelled. And in these three stories, 
through three different ideas completely, we see the same pattern. The starting with the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And even when you don't understand why bad things have happened, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And sometimes even when you mess up and only half obey, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love you. And even when you've messed up completely, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love you. There's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 107. It talks about four different groups of people. There were certain sailors lost at sea. They knew they were going to die and they cried out to the Lord and he rescued them. Two of the examples weren't the fault of the people, like people lost at sea. But two of the examples in that psalm were the people's own stupid fault. And in both cases, the storyline is exactly the same. They cried out to the Lord and he delivered them. As we come to prayer right now, and even as we come to communion, an act that reminds us of the love of God for us. My prayer for you this morning is that wherever your circumstances are, wherever you have let this toxic waste bleed into your view of God, that it would be expelled afresh and that the Lord might give you power to press in on him and to understand his love for you. Let's pray. Lord, what a comfort it must have been to the first disciples when they opened up Mark's gospel to read about you, Jesus, and read about you being thrown to the wild animals. And the preceding idea was the love of the Father. And how we thank you so much for that story. And then to read on to the man with leprosy and to know that some of them had only half obeyed and had got the witness wrong and yet you loved them. And maybe some others had completely messed up like the rich man, and yet you love them. Lord, I pray that even as we come to take communion now, this wonderful act of remembrance of your love for us, that you would do something, Holy Spirit, today in the hearts of us. Because, Lord, we want the fullness of you, the living God. And we know we can only have it through a comprehension that is beyond comprehension of your love. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about this idea of the love of God and here on display before us, is the ultimate display of God's love. And perhaps as you walk down the aisles, as you celebrate communion, you consider that washing away of the things that have seeped in and clouded your view of God and your understanding of him. 
And so we pray together, all glory to you, our heavenly Father, for in your tender mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to, to, to suffer death on the cross for our redemption, who made thereby his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and who instituted and in his holy gospel commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body, and blood, who on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given you thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given you thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many. For the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Let us celebrate communion together.